When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, an embarrassment of riches plucked from among this week's stories. I'm Anne McElvoy, curating today's collection for you. And coming up, a former titan of Wall Street explains why ethical investing makes financial sense. Why visitors to Peru should forget Machu Picchu in favour of the country's neglected treasures. And our Johnson columnist shares his tips on what to look for in a guide to good grammar. But we start with our cover, which this week looked at the most dangerous confrontation between Pakistan and India since they went to war in 1971. Their armies regularly exchange fire over the disputed territory of Kashmir, But since both countries tested nuclear weapons in the late 90s, they've refrained from sending fighter jets across the border until last week. After a terrorist group based in Pakistan launched an attack in the Indian-controlled part of Kashmir that killed 40 soldiers, India responded by bombing what it said was a terrorist training camp in the Pakistani state of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Pakistan retaliated by sending jets of its own to bomb Indian targets. In the ensuing air battle, both sides claimed to have shot down the other's aircraft and Pakistan captured an Indian pilot. On March 1st, that pilot was released in what Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan called a peace gesture. But the affair has changed what have been long-standing rules of engagement between the feuding neighbours. The initial Indian air raid struck not Pakistan's bit of Kashmir, but well within Pakistan proper and just 100 kilometres from the capital, Islamabad. We argued that in the long term, stability depends on Pakistan ending its support for terrorism. Pakistan has long-backed terrorists who mount grisly attacks in India, most notably in Mumbai in 2008, when jihadists who arrived by boat from Pakistan killed some 165 people. Although Pakistan's army promised then to shut down such extremist groups, it has not. By responding more forcefully than usual to the latest outrage, Mr Modi understandably wanted to signal that he was not willing to allow Pakistan to keep sponsoring terrorism. But we urged that for now, Mr Modi must share the responsibility. With an election looming in April, he may think he can use bullishness against Pakistan to win over voters. Mr Modi has always presented himself as a bold and resolute military leader who does not shrink from confronting Pakistan's provocations. 
he is taken to repeating a catchphrase from the film Uri, which portrays a commander raid he ordered against Pakistan in 2016, in response to a previous terrorist attack as a moment of chin-jutting grit. The all-too-plausible fear is that his own tendency to swagger, along with domestic political pressures, will spur him further down the spiral towards war. Miscalculation on either side would be catastrophic, and you can read more about Mr Modi's preparations for the upcoming elections in this week's issue of The Economist. If you're not a subscriber, just go to economist.com slash radio offer and get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. Now a reputation for pulling no punches in politics can win votes, but it can also make enemies. Our new Global Current Affairs podcast, The Intelligence, interviewed Rahm Emanuel, Chicago's larger-than-life mayor. His confrontational manner won him few friends. So after two terms in office, he's not running for re-election. Our Midwest correspondent, Adam Roberts, asked him to weigh up his last eight years. We never, ever walked away from a challenge. Shortest school day in America? Dealt with it. No universal kindergarten for every child? Dealt with it. Community college system with the worst graduation rate in America? Dealt with it. You can list any problem that you can think of with Chicago, and he will claim that he dealt with it. Well, I put it to him, for example, that he hadn't solved Chicago's fiscal problems. It hasn't got enough money in the bank to pay for all the things it wants to do. It, there's big problems to come. Well, who solves it? Nobody. Where was it? Nobody. Nobody even ever. He took offence at the question. Nobody in public life solves anything. Mm. They improve it. And he landed a sharp kick on my own foot. If you're here to solve it, Call me. <laughs> Sometimes what's needed is fresh perspective. Our Money Talks show last week heard from one of the most prominent women of Wall Street. Sally Kravchek ran Merrill Lynch before she started her own women's investment platform, Elvest. She told The Economist's recent impacting investment summit in New York how she came round to the idea of ethical investment. I've turned down meetings with impact investors. I, you know, if you had worked your way into my office when I was running Merrill or Smith Barty and said, you know, I'm here to talk about social impact, I would have said, you know, you're a granola eater, tree hugger. Right. You know, so I was all the way with old Wall Street. But things changed over time. And I have become passionate about gender lens investing. The power of diversity is so substantial that more diverse teams outperform smarter teams. And by the way, I get it. I'm an analyst, right? You know, maybe it's causation, maybe it's correlation, maybe it's coincidence, but it's a hell of a coincidence. The latest episode of our Babbage podcast spoke to scientists pushing the boundaries of the known world. There are 118 chemical elements known to man. But in labs from Moscow to Tokyo, researchers are still testing the limits of the periodic table to find new elements and new applications for the ones we already have. Jacqueline Gates leads the heavy element group at Berkeley Labs in California. Oftentimes, when you're trying to search for something new, you're not doing it for specific applications. And then 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road, applications begin to show up. Americium. When that was discovered, nobody knew what practical applications it would have. 
And for probably 30 or 40 years after its discovery, it was in every smoke detector in every house. Um, with Einsteinium and Fermium, again, nobody knew what practical applications they would have when they were discovered. Well, now they're used in cancer treatments um, or to help develop drugs for potential cancer treatments. And so I think looking for applications is not always the best thing that you should do in science. Oftentimes, just the pursuit of expanding our knowledge could lead to applications further down the road that you don't foresee at this point in time. That was Jacqueline Gates, one of a new generation of element hunters featured in a special episode of Babbage for the 150th anniversary of that periodic table. You can hear all of these stories in full and much more besides by subscribing to Economist Radio on your podcast app. Back to this week's paper now and a piece in our US section tracing the evolving relationship between religion and politics in America. Conservative politics have gone hand-in-hand with evangelical Christianity for decades. That fusion seemed complete in 2016 when 81% of white born-again Christians voted for Donald Trump, according to data from the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group. But this coupling now seems to be driving some of the faithful away from their flocks. PRRI found a six percentage point drop in the share of the population that identify as white evangelicals, from 23% in 2006 to 17% in 2016. ABC and The Washington Post found a still larger decline of eight percentage points, larger than the drop among mainline white Protestants. Put off by the politics of their congregations, a group of former evangelicals, or exvies, is trying to organise an alternative political revival. Christopher Stroop, a journalist, has emerged as a leader among the exvies. Mr Stroop was raised in a fundamentalist evangelical household. There was strong pressure to be a young earth creationist, Mr Stroop says. He also recalls a class field trip during school hours to a prototype Tea Party convention. Mr Stroop says his education was all about isolating children in the subculture so they'll grow up to be the culture warriors the church wants them to be. The ruins of Machu Picchu High in the Peruvian Andes have become a compulsory stop for wealthy tourists doing South America. 1.4 million, no less, visited in 2017. But in his latest dispatch, our Bayo columnist shunned the Incan citadel in favour of Peru's neglected treasures. One night in 1987, the police woke Walter Alva, a Peruvian archaeologist, and invited him to come to inspect some stolen gold objects. The tip would lead Mr Alva to discover the intact tomb of a ruler of the Mochica, or Moche civilization, whom he dubbed the Lord of Sipan. It held the Lord's full regalia of gold breastplates and crowns, exquisite nose and ear pieces, and a unique necklace of giant gold and silver peanuts. It was the start of an archaeological revolution in northern Peru. Since then, Machica temples, built from mud reinforced with gravel and shells, have been unearthed at Huaca de la Luna, near the colonial city of Trujillo. They are decorated with embossed and colourfully painted friezes of fanged warlord deities and bound prisoners. In 2005, at a site called El Brujo, Regolo Franco, another archaeologist, found a tomb almost as rich as that of Sipan, 
but of a woman now known as the Lady of Cow. Peru's modern dysfunctions have prevented it from reaping the full benefits of these finds, but the archaeologists are working on winning over local communities. For decades, locals lived from tomb robbing, and Peru's treasures were melted down or sold on an international black market. There wasn't a native hero, says Mr. Alva. Now there are several. The archaeologists have revealed that what once seemed to be desert hillocks were the ramped, decorated, and tomb-filled temples of one of the world's most sophisticated early civilizations. They deserve to be far better known. And finally, here at the Economist, we pride ourselves on our use of language. Our in-house style guide runs to some two hundred pages, with rulings on everything from the judicious use of hyphens to warnings against Americanisms. But can any single publication hope to cover all the quirks of English? Our language columnist Johnson has read them all and shared his favourites. Why do people buy books on English usage? The obvious answer for authoritative advice doesn't square with what people actually buy. Lynn Truss had a mega seller with Eats Shoots and Leaves, a zero tolerance guide to punctuation. Never mind that zero tolerance needs a hyphen. Miss Truss's style, sometimes crisp humour, sometimes camped up outrage, was the real selling point. The newest entry to the straining shelf is Dreyer's English. Benjamin Dreyer is copy chief at Random House, a New York publisher. For four decades, he improved others' prose without showcasing his own. His experience and good sense are established as early as page nine, where he dispels what he calls the big three unkillable myths: that you can't start a sentence with a conjunction, end one with a preposition, or split an infinitive. Do all three. Says Mr. Dreyer, "You'll have a certain percentage of the reading and the online commenting populace up your fundament to tell you you're subliterate. Go ahead and break them anyway. It's fun, and I'll back you up." Mr. Dreyer says he considered calling the book the last word, but decided against. There's no rule without an exception. Well, mostly, there's no thought without an afterthought. At least for me, there's always something you meant to say but forgot to say. There's no last word, only the next word. This is what to look for in a language book. Authority without arrogance. There is always more to learn. Having split quite enough infinitives for one episode, that's it for this week's tasting menu. But remember, there's much more where that came from at Economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And while you're with us, please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is the Economist.